was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, good afternoon and welcome to Christ the King Anglican Church in Toronto on this octave of Easter. Again, octave of Easter, just a fancy way of saying the eighth day of the Easter season. Next week, Glenn is going to return us to the Matthew series in Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 8. But today we stay with the Easter theme and uh, him read for us the lectionary reading um, Luke from Luke, Chapter 24. And I encourage you to have um, a Bible handy and open to uh, that passage, Luke 24, verses 13 to 19. And this text actually connects uh, with Glenn's sermon last week because on Easter Day, uh, Glenn preached the resurrection from the Old Testament uh, scriptures, particularly from the Psalms. And that's exactly what the apostles and the early church did. Um, they didn't have the New Testament. They're the ones who wrote it. So they uh, preached uh, Christ crucified and risen from the Old Testament, and they learned that from Jesus himself, because in Jesus' resurrection appearances, he taught his disciples um, from the, the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, everything concerning himself. So today, the, um, the title of my sermon is just one word, but it's probably a word that many of you have never heard before. So I'm going to write it here on this, um, on this page. Can everyone see it? <laughs> Maybe. It's hard to find a place where everyone could see it. Maybe I'll just hold it up. So the word is eucatastrophe. You may never have heard the word eucatastrophe, but you've probably heard the word catastrophe. Uh, ca catastrophe, according to the dictionary, is an event um, causing great and often sudden damage or suffering. A catastrophe is a disaster. 
But the prefix EU, pronounced U, um, means good. We have a lot of words in English, actually, that have this prefix. Uh, just one example is the word euphoria, which means feeling really good. So a eucatastrophe is a good catastrophe. Like a catastrophe, it is also great and sudden. It's a great and sudden event. But instead of causing damage and suffering, it brings restoration and blessing. So I have a definition I want to read for you um, of eucatastrophe from, from this book, which was written by a Christian doctor who works in a rural hospital in Burundi, Africa. It's the hospital where my daughter Alexis did her medical internship. And the uh, name of the book is Promises in the Dark, Walking with Those in Need Without Losing Heart. And the doctor's name is Eric McLaughlin, and he defines eucatastrophe like this. It's a literary term attributed to J.R.R. Tolkien. And it essentially means victory snatched out of the jaws of defeat. In Tolkien terms, for all of you Lord of the Rings fans, it's all the free peoples of Middle-earth standing before the armies of Mordor and a sure and certain death. Then at the last possible moment, the ring falls into the fire. In an instant, it is destroyed and evil crumbles. Out of the deepest defeat explodes a shock of victory. And yet, and this seems to be the distinguishing feature of a eucatastrophe, it happens in a way that makes sense of the rest of the story. It's the best type of ending. So a eucatastrophe happens in a way that makes sense of the rest of the story. It's not just a reversal of fortunes, like when the raptors were losing the game and then they got a few buckets in the clutch and pulled ahead for the win. That's just a reversal of fortunes. But a eucatastrophe is the capstone on a complete story in which all the rest of the story, including the painful and confusing parts, makes sense in light of the blessing that now breaks out and just eclipses everything. An example of a eucatastrophe from the Old Testament is when the patriarch Jacob lost his son Joseph and then got him back. So in that story, Jacob sends his, his favored son, Joseph, out to check on his brothers and the sheep, but Joseph never comes back. Now, we the readers know why. It's because the brothers, uh, jealous of Joseph's um, favored status, they um, sell him into slavery and fake his death. But from Jacob's perspective, Joseph is dead. 
After that, Jacob's life is consumed with grief over this loss, and he becomes very possessive of Joseph's little brother, Ben. Years go by, and a, um, yes, I know, we have, uh, we have Jacob and Ben right here. <laughs> Years go by, and uh, um, a severe uh, multi-year famine hits. It hits a wide area, including Canaan, where Jacob lives. And Jacob's family is facing starvation. But there's a rumor that somehow Egypt anticipated this situation and stored up grain. So Jacob sends uh, all his sons, except his beloved Ben, to buy food in Egypt. Good news. They come back with some food. But bad news. The ruler of Egypt is holding one of the brothers, Simeon, captive, and he says, you're not getting him back, and you're not buying any more food unless you can prove your honest men by bringing your youngest brother. Could things possibly get any worse from Jacob's perspective? He puts his foot down. No way. Ben is not going. More time passes, and the food that they bought in Egypt is running out. Finally, Jacob gives in to the family pleading. He feels utterly bereft as Ben leaves him. He feels like his life is just over. For Jacob, what happens next is a eucatastrophe. The brothers come back, including Ben, with food, and so much more. They bring news. Joseph is alive, and he's ruler of Egypt. He has sent these wagons for you and the whole family to come to him. There's five more years of this famine thing, but Joseph's got food enough to take care of us all. Not, and not only is uh, Joseph saving the family, but he is also saving untold multitudes of people in Egypt and in the surrounding nations because he is feeding people now in the famine and he's acting wisely so that when the famine ends, um, the agriculture and livestock will be able to be restored in the land. Wow. When uh, Jacob's sons tell him all this, the Bible says of Jacob, and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. It seemed way too good to be true. But in time, the truth sinks in and his spirit revives. It is unimaginably amazing, the blessing that J Jacob received when he got Joseph back from the dead. And then to add on top of that, that Joseph is Lord of the land and savior of the family and indeed savior of the known world. For Jacob, it made sense out of all the rest of the painful and grief-laden story that came before. That's a eucatastrophe. I imagine you can see where I'm going with all this and our topic and text for today. 
Actually, J.R.R. Tolkien himself made the connection by saying that the incarnation of Jesus was the eucatastrophe of history and the resurrection was the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. That God himself would come in the flesh to save our sin-sick human race is a eucatastrophe that makes sense of the story of the Old Testament. And that Jesus Christ rose from the dead as our Savior and Lord is the eucatastrophe that makes sense of and reveals the necessity of the cross. Let's keep this in mind as we look at our text for today. The New Testament records 11 resurrection appearances in the 40-day period between when Jesus uh, first rose from the dead and when he ascended uh, to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Luke's Gospel contains three of these appearances, and they're all uh, within a 24-hour period of, uh, of the resurrection, and they're all uh, in our passage today. So the first is verses 13 to 35, when the risen Jesus joins two disciples as they walk from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And actually, uh, Roger preached on these verses a few years ago um, on this same Sunday, the octave of Easter. And you can find his excellent exposition on the Christ the King website. The second resurrection appearance is mentioned only briefly in verse 34, that the risen Jesus appeared to Simon Peter. And then the third is verse 36 to 49, the risen Jesus coming and standing among the apostles and the other disciples in the locked upper room in Jerusalem. Before our passage begins, the first part of Luke chapter 24 recounts how early in the morning on the Sunday after the Friday crucifixion, some women, two Marys and a Joanna, uh, go to the tomb with spices for the body of Jesus. But to their amazement, they find the stone is rolled away and the body is gone. Then two angels show up and tell them, he's not here, he has risen. The angels charge the women to go tell the 11 apostles and all the other uh, disciples. And the women do this, but they are not believed. Although Simon Peter does follow up and confirm that the tomb is indeed empty. There's no body, just empty grave clothes. As our passage begins in verse 13, it is later that same day. And two disciples, one named Cleopas and the other one unnamed, um, are leaving Jerusalem and walking to this town of Emmaus. They are talking about all the things that have happened, and the risen Jesus draws up and walks with them. But verse 16 says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He asks them what they're talking about, and the, the question seems to take them by surprise. Verse 17, they stood still, looking sad. They're sad, they're dejected, 
and maybe a little annoyed and incredulous, how could anyone leaving Jerusalem on that day not know the things that have happened there in the last few? You know, it's funny how they think he is so clued out when he's actually prodding them to demonstrate that they're the ones who are clued out. Verse 19, what things? Things about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, a mighty man of God in word and deed. He had been their hope to redeem Israel from the Romans, but instead, disastrously, the leaders of Israel got him crucified by the Romans. And now more unsettling things are happening. Before he died, three times he said this bizarre thing about rising from the dead, whatever that could mean, on the third day. Now it is the third day since his death, and his body has disappeared from the tomb. And the women who first discovered this report that angels appeared to them and said he was alive, but no one has seen him. Isn't it so strange how the very evidences that we recognize as pointing to Jesus' glorious resurrection were instead deeply troubling for them? They had no category for what was happening. And so after the crucifixion, everything just seemed disruptive and fearful. I don't know what they were thinking, but perhaps it was something like this. We've just been through the most crushing disappointment of losing our Messiah hopeful. Leave us alone. We're going home to try to glue back together the pieces of our shattered lives. We don't want to hear ridiculous rumors that the man who was grotesquely tortured and crucified is alive again. And we sure don't want to meet some disfigured zombie. Whatever they were thinking, the risen Jesus jolts them awake. Hey, don't be foolish. Haven't you been listening to your own prophets? Then he says in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Necessary? And then in verse 27, and then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Well, this is a surprise. Uh, the guy they thought knew, knew nothing apparently knows quite a lot, and their hearts are burning within them as they listen to him. So on arriving at home uh, at sundown, they invite him to stay over. And at dinner, he takes bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives it to them. It's him! It's Jesus. Verse 31. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. This is a eucatastrophe. In the blink of an eye, everything makes sense and it's unspeakably good. And it's breaking out all over. 
and sweeping them along in a tidal wave of blessing. Night has fallen, but who cares? They get up immediately, and by the light of the moon, hurriedly retrace their steps along the dark road back to Jerusalem to share news that is better than they could have hoped or imagined. The cross was necessary, a fulfillment of scripture and a cosmic victory. Jesus Christ has beaten sin and death. The grave could not hold him. He lives, he reigns, our Lord, our Savior, and indeed, the Savior of the world. When they find the others back in Jerusalem, they learn by this point, uh, they, they learn that by this point, uh, the risen Jesus has also appeared to Simon P Peter. They share their testimony, what happened on the road, and how, they, um, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And then suddenly, Jesus himself, is standing among them. Shalom! <laughs> to their shocked, frightened silence, he says in uh, verse 38 and 39, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And he asks for something to eat, and he eats it before their eyes. Jesus is alive in the flesh. He is not a disembodied spirit, and he is not the product of some wishful thinker's hallucinations. His body is different in the sense that locked doors or geographical distances present no obstacle to him. And he could appear or vanish uh, at will. But it's him. His body is transformed for life eternal, yet still bears the scars in his hands and, in, and his feet that speak of what he accomplished at the cross. I like the part where it says in verse 41, that they were still disbelieving for joy. Because it reminds me of the eucatastrophe moment for Jacob. When his sons told him, Joseph is alive, and he's Lord of Egypt and Savior of the known world. Jacob literally could not believe it. His heart had been in the deep freeze for so long that it remained numb, at least for a bit. But gradually, the glorious reality dawned on him and thawed him out. It changed not only how he saw the future, but how he understood the painful and confusing past. There are so many resonances between what Jacob was grasping at that moment and what the disciples are grasping at this moment. It's unbelievable. Jesus is alive, and he's Lord and Savior of the world. 
But even as the truth is still sinking in for the disciples, Jesus gets down to business. They are all witnesses of what J.R.R. Tolkien rightly called the eucatastrophe of history. So guess what? They need to get the word out. And Jesus promises the empowering of the Holy Spirit to do this. Verses 45 to 49. Then he, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, opened their minds to understand the scriptures, which at that time consisted of the Old Testament, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, upon you. But stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. As we move towards the close of this sermon, what is the application for us? I think it comes as we recognize that God is unfolding a great story. In this great story, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the spreading of the news of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, is the eucatastrophe that will ultimately make sense of the whole story. And you are in this unfolding story. And your part in the story matters. So my, my prayer for you and for me today is that as we reflect on the eucatastrophe of the resurrection, it would strengthen our hearts to continue playing our parts, whatever they may be. Even as we may feel like nothing makes sense and we're getting nowhere and we just want to throw in the towel and go home. Think of the experience of Jacob grieving sorrow and trouble upon sorrow and trouble and then the news comes that not only changes the future, but makes sense of the past. Think of the experience of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, just giving up and going home, unable to see the signs of hope right in front of them. And then Jesus walks and talks and breaks bread with them. And their eyes are opened to the good news that changes how they see everything. And their hearts are strengthened to join the mission of taking this good news to the ends of the earth. We too can have our eyes opened and hearts strengthened every time we come together as the body of Christ in his presence to share in the word and the sacrament. By way of conclusion, I want to, I want to give the last word to uh, 
the uh, Christian doctor serving in uh, the rural hospital in Burundi. It's one of the poorest countries on earth. And this man surely knows what it's like to struggle with grief and discouragement as he plays the part to which the Lord has called him. He says this. According to Christianity, this is what God does. He makes you catastrophes. What this means for us now is that if the stories past inform the stories to come, then Christians have good reason to look for surprising victory. Maybe it's like that for all of us, toiling in our work and our relationships to see God's kingdom manifest. We are all like masons laying stones on a road. It looks like it's headed out to a desert with nothing but scrub brush and sand on the horizon. But then one day, in an instant, we turn the corner of some inconspicuous mesa and find ourselves at the gate of a city, at the city. It's where we wanted to go, but where we didn't think we were getting any closer to. Our limited data and our limited perspective would have declared it unlikely, if not impossible. But we were nevertheless on the road all the time. It's a eucatastrophe. It's what God does. It's a thing of joy and beauty, and the unexpectedness of it all is a testimony that we were led by hands and all is that our own small efforts were woven into this mighty arrival, the best type of ending. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.